Good afternoon, and welcome to episode 698 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. Anything to discuss? Sure, a few things. Okay. All right. There's a little note in one of the uh, articles on the Astros hack yep. that noted that four Cardinals employees have hired defense attorneys, Yeah, criminal defense attorneys. And uh, I wanted to ask you whether you think this is a, appropriate, uh, not them hiring attorneys, I mean, of course, but uh, there's sort of always been a rule that if you like assault a human being, they don't press charges as long as you assault him in a baseball way, you know? Uh-huh. Like they, they've never come after a guy for throwing um, a projectile at another person's head. At, like it, I think there's very, very, very rare exceptions, like that thing in hockey one time. But generally speaking, it has been determined that crimes committed in pursuit of a baseball victory are, are for some reason, perhaps a good reason, perhaps not, uh, exempt from the justice system. And so I wondered what you, how you feel about this. Uh, being in the actual real criminal justice system. Is there any reason that this should be a crime, do you think? <laughs> well, other than that it technically is one. I know, but I mean, it was so many so many potential crimes are considered not crimes because they happen in sports, right? Yeah, that's true. Some Well, some level of physical aggression is accepted, but this is so... This is so divorced from that. This is front office people sitting at a computer. It is, and, and it's, it's looking for a competitive advantage. Whereas the things that we're talking about, guys hitting other guys with baseballs, I guess you could say well, it's, there's an advantage to it if it has a, if it intimidates your opponents, but it's also a, it's also just a, corrective thing it's just a there's no advantage gained by the team if anything it hurts the team that's counter evidence (laughs) i I see the i that these guys are are doing this specifically because they're trying to maybe i mean again like as we've talked about it doesn't really seem like this was about a competitive advantage necessarily maybe who knows but i mean punching a guy in a brawl for instance is is more divorced from the competitive angle of the game if it is indeed the competitive angle of the game that justifies crimes on the field so so first of all i guess why do you what do you think is the the reason for carving out an exemption for some criminal acts done in sport well there has to be some exemption where you can have players killing each other because <laughs> no i'm saying the exemption no i'm not i'm asking the exemption the basic exemption that that you never see a guy get charged for punching another guy on a oh, baseball field why does that well, exemption exist or you know boxing <laughs> boxing is only but, punching other guys that's somewhat different though i mean it's like, not the entire basis of sport of baseball that is sanctioned that is sanctioned fighting right. but baseball fighting is not sanctioned in fact, it's against the rules, and if you do it in baseball, you get punished. So it's clearly specifically outlawed by the sport itself, and yet the legal justice system has determined that it is not their business what happens in baseball, even if it's even if it's off topic, even uh-huh. if it's clearly reminiscent of other crimes that get prosecuted. Yeah, it's uh, like a violence antitrust exemption. Yeah. So what is the reason for that exemption? Do you think we like baseball? <laughs> we like to see it happen. I I don't know. I've thought of it at 
times. Like it's, it's basically assault. It's throwing a baseball really hard at some other person in a way that could really hurt that person. And a lot of times it is literally assault. After, after a brawl, when, I mean, when Johnny Cueto's punching and kicking guys, that's not even baseball related. Like there's no baseball involved there. He's punching and kicking people. Like it's no longer like a, like, oh, well, what is the intent? Like, he punched and kicked them, and that's against the rule. I guess it's partially that we understand that they all know the risk and accept the risk by being on the baseball field. This is something that has always happened in baseball. If you're a baseball player, you know that you are accepting the risk that someone's going to hit you with a pitch because of some other thing that happened, whether you but did it or not. hit you with a punch. Like, uh-huh. don't even think about the pitch. Hit you with a punch. Someone might punch you. Pitch is worse. Pitch is scarier. I know, but there's not like what what is the difference between a punch? Why does the why does the justice system not treat a punch as a punch? Because a punch is a specifically I mean, there there is every day thousands of people are prosecuted for throwing punches at people they're mad at. Yeah. <laughs> and and so why does a punch get excluded? I don't even need to get clever and ask about the the pitch with intent. Just yeah. the punch. Why is a punch exempt? Because <laughs> everyone's culpable. Everyone does it. Everyone accepts that it could happen to them. No one presses charges. If someone pressed charges, maybe it would be, it could be prosecuted. You don't need to press charges for something to be prosecuted, though. I suppose not. And I don't know that, I mean, there's a, a there's probably, I don't know if anybody's done the scientific inquiry into this, but do you think that there is more punching in baseball per capita than there is in like a biker bar or something? <laughs> Maybe. I don't I mean, know. I would guess that there's not. And yet if you punch someone in a biker bar and a cop sees you, he's going to, he might arrest you for unlawful conduct, for assault, for disturbing the peace, for whatever, you know? And so you wouldn't go, oh, well, everybody who goes into a bar knows that you could get punched. I mean, everybody who walks down the street knows you could get punched. That that stupid knockout thing that everybody was freaking out a couple of years ago, right? Like where people just were getting punched randomly on the sidewalk. Remember that? Yeah. It's not like you'd be like, oh, well, you knew going on the sidewalk that you might get punched. So, but you don't. You don't know. That's do. a weird thing. You, you don't I, know on the sidewalk that someone might punch baseball. you. The huge majority of Major League Baseball players make it through their career without getting punched in a game. It's hard to determine who's responsible in most baseball punch. Yeah, but everyone's punching. Like, when punches happen, it's a brawl. There's, like, everyone is, it's a mass behind home plate, and everyone is pushing and pulling and punching, and it's, everyone is equally at fault. Usually, not always. There are cases where it's very clear that someone did something that went beyond. I but. There are usually not that many people throwing punches, but I mean, if a guy charges the mound, uh, it's pretty clear who charged the mound. Yeah, but he charged the mound because he thought the other guy started it. So? <laughs> it's, I don't know. There's... I'm not calling for them to get, look, Ben, I'm not calling, I'm not calling for them to be prosecuted in, or anything like that. I'm trying to figure out the, the logical reason that we've come up with this rule so that I can see if it applies to, using your old boss's password to, to yeah. play hijinks and raise I think it's just because we accept that baseball is very competitive and the stakes are high and there's a lot of pressure and we enjoy watching it and this has always been part of the game and there's just a societal exemption for baseball 
because of that. Okay, so I'm going to then say that everything you just said, other than societal exemption, applies to the quote-unquote hack, right? It's a competitive environment. We enjoy the gamesmanship of front office activities. We see the front office as an extension of the team. And there is a, what was the last one you said? A competitive, oh, there is a history of this, yeah. which is stealing signs and, you know, otherwise, otherwise trying to spy on a team or, or capture intelligence about another team. So I would say that all that also applies here. Yeah. I, I, I find it to be assuming that it, it, the situation is as described. I think that I would consider this to be, it feels to me as a non-expert, non-legal, non-informed person. It feels to me like weirdly overreaching for the government to be doing this. And I'm not, I'm not typically the, you know, the guy who accuses the government of overreaching for everything they do. Uh, when it comes to baseball, like the, I find if Congress wants to do hearings, that usually is fine with me. But, uh, in this case, it really, really doesn't feel like the sort of crime that, <laughs> like some, like, assistant GM or whatever should go to jail for. And I don't think there's any chance that they're going to go to jail for. So why is the FBI investigating this? It feels like baseball's realm and that baseball should be the one investigating it. It's hard to say with this. I mean, it's just, I guess, the whatever exemption that we apply to the players doesn't apply to front office people who wear suits and sit in an office and aren't on the field. And there's no, there's no mechanism to police this behavior, like a fastball in the ribs, unless you want, you know, front office people to start punching each other, <laughs> which, which well, would be fastball. bad. It's in baseball. It's determined that a fastball in the ribs to a teammate counts as a fastball in the ribs and so you could you could throw if you wanted to you could throw at the cardinals you know best player and the message i'm sure would get through i mean these the front office people don't want the players to hate them that's a pretty <laughs> that's true clear thing so yeah. uh and you know there's you know, all sorts of ways that you could the baseball could punish i mean they don't need to go to jail they shouldn't go to jail you you <laughs> must admit or you must agree Everybody listening to this agrees, right? No jail to Cardinals four, right? No jail. Like I, most would, people listening to this just probably want to send Cardinals to jail for no reason. I will. I will literally, if any of them is going to jail, I as, <laughs> strap as, yourself to the prison I, gates. No, I will. I swear right here, right now, I will literally build, a, a, make a picket or whatever, a sign, you know, like a sign, like a picket sign. Uh-huh. And I will march through the streets of the town I live in for two hours. <laughs> okay, I'll be there to chronicle it. All right. <laughs> All right. No jail time for the Cardinal Four. I don't know if there are four, but I'm saying it right now. Let's t-shirts. Right. Send these uh, letters and emails and tweets to your congressman. Let's keep them out of jail and and let's let's have some perspective on this. That's all I'm saying. And I'm pro-prosecuting for assault on a field. I mean, this is so much more than, like, jail is awful, Ben. Nobody should go to jail. Yeah, they go to white-collar jail. Go to jail for people who hack into other people's ground controls. You know what they do to cardinals in prison? (laughs) It's rough. Yeah. All right, what else? We got an email about the Royals all-star voting from Jason. 
who uh, claims to have some inside inside insight. Um, and so he gave us a little bit of background. And do you mind if I just read it? Nope. All right. So uh, under the bullet point, the cause, Jason writes, you all were looking for a reason or a team-led effort to get out the vote. As far as I can tell, it's been a pretty grassroots effort, and here's how it played out. Myself and my peers among the Royals diaspora have never known a willing Royals team, winning, that's an autocorrect, a winning Royals team, and are genuinely excited about the prospect of forgetting Ken Harvey, all-star. The Royals haven't had a starting position player since Jermaine Dye in 2000, so enthusiasm was high. The early vote tallies reflected this, which led to a ton of national media stories to the effect of, you all better get out and vote or the Royals are going to have six all-stars. This led me and a few of my fellow Royals pals to think this novel and actually get online to vote. Then more stories cascaded and more KC fans took it as a badge of honor or a challenge to defend the vote. I am, however, disgusted, disgusted that so many of them were voting for Omar Infante. I believe Cologne, the better option for the Royals at second base. Can you, but you only get one. Isn't there only one option unless you do a write-in? You can only vote for one player, you mean? No, yeah. I mean the team can only nominate one guy for the ballot. So there's, uh, Cologne would presumably not be oh. the ballot at second base, but uh-huh. you can write him in. Rio's tally is also a disgrace to the fan base. The novelty of it all at first seemed that all the Royals deserving to be in the conversation were dominating the voting. Gordon, Kane, Moose, Perez, Alcides, etc. Does that sound like a reasonable narrative for how this all happened? Well, when we first talked about it, I said that maybe Royals fans just cared more about this for for various reasons because they've been bad for a long time and there's a lot of excitement about the team when the team gets good. So to an extent, I'm still suspicious because of the volume of the votes and the ease which with which you can circumvent the, I don't even want to call them limits or protections, really. There, there essentially are no limits or protections, so it is somewhat easily exploitable, it would seem. And when you have Kansas City or the surrounding areas outvoting the rest of the entire country, it raises some flags. Yeah, right. So the, the basically the idea is that they were more enthusiastic at first within a fairly, you know, fairly reasonable and then... Uh, uh, that kind of got a lot of attention. I still, I don't know. I mean, it's an, it's a little bit of a lucky year that, for instance, there's not a good shortstop candidate. Yeah. And so, um, so Alcides Escobar might plausibly jump to the top by a little extra enthusiasm. But, like, he's got, you know, three times the votes of Jose Reyes. And it's just, it's a huge, and, you know, Kendry's Morales is not, he's fine, but it's not like Kendry's Morales is, uh, had a had an organic Royals fan following that could have could have plausibly happened uh, without some like structured or whatever uh, effort. It seems to me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kendry's Morales is not a beloved figure in KC history. He's having a significantly worse year than some of his contender, uh, some of his competition, and so. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, he's a royal. Everyone, clearly, that is the thing these players have in common, so maybe it, it doesn't really matter how you're doing. It's just a support-all-royals movement, Movement, but it is, it's it's suspicious. Uh, and then as far as uh, the, the royals fan base, this is a little bit of insight about Kansas City, uh, and I kind of, I sort of dismissed your your hypothesis that 
maybe Royals fans are just really excited and have a lot of fervor as a group. But he says the Cardinals often get grief for their best fans in baseball shtick, but what gets lost is the absolutely insufferable nature of Kansas University fans. They rep their team harder than anyone. Even in Seattle, where I live, I see more KU gear than any team aside from UW and Washington State, even more than Oregon and Oregon State. I believe their overzealous desire to be associated with anything of national relevance has manifested itself in the all-star balloting. Also, I believe KC is known to have a great fan base. It was just dormant for so long. Exhibit A, when KC hosted the all-star game, they sold out the Futures game, and Will Myers got a standing ovation before his first A-B. The postseason was pretty raucous. I'm not sure if the disproportionate number of excellent national baseball writers who are Royals fans has anything to do with this, but that's another topic. And yeah, the Royals also, uh, when they host the All-Star Game, had that whole like booing Robbie Cano thing. And, right. I mean, they are they they can gather uh, as a as a group and make some noise. So mm-hmm. uh, more, I guess it is uh, more likely that it would be from the Royals fans than like the Indians fans or some other small market teams fans. Uh, yes, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do I have anything else? I can't believe you took Puig over Kershaw. We haven't talked about that. Uh, in the ESPN franchise yeah. player draft. I mean, I get it. It's a pitcher, but like, what? How many guys would you take over Kershaw? Puig. <laughs> There's like one. Okay. I mean, so you would have who taken, was remaining in the draft? So you would have taken no other position player over him. I was thinking about Nolan Arenado, but probably that's it. All right. Did you have any? Trout and Harper were picked, and I don't remember who else was picked. I was picking what eighth or something. Did you have any, any like clear method for weighing the risk of of taking a pitcher, particularly in an event that loses relevance the next day? So if he gets hurt (laughs) two years from now, you don't actually have to suffer for it. Not really. My, it was you know you're starting a franchise was the conceit of this thing, and so I figured that. Puig might have more marketing appeal and value than Kershaw, although Kershaw has some, but Puig has kind of become a national figure very quickly and is very charismatic, and I thought that mattered more than zero if you were starting a franchise, but it was mostly the position player pitcher thing. Dan Simborski did a stats, a zips-based breakdown of what the picks, who made the best picks or who made the worst picks or whatever, and I was picking eighth, and he had Puig sixth, as, you know, he should have been picked sixth. And Kershaw, I think he had third. So, eh, I'm happy with Puig. Right. You're the, you're always afraid that Kershaw is, is hurt, right? You're perpetually afraid that he's hurt. I know, but that's, that's like a, like a lovable goof that I have. Like, it's uh-huh. not, it's, it's been it's wrong not, for not, five years. But it could be right. At I mean, some point, it's, it's not, Impossible. Yeah, sure, but he's not. He's never. He's not hurt. Like no. I, I'm not thinking he's gonna get hurt. I, my, my thing is that he is that I think he has been hurt for three years, and it's just taking a really long time to manifest. See, that's uh-huh. that's what's stupid about me. It's like uh-huh. I, I think that he like it was the plantar fasciitis from like three years ago. Yeah, that he I had thought, quite the back thing last year. Yeah, and the, so I, I see. Like, every once in a while, I see these tiny little hints that I think are the manifestation of the injury finally showing up, but it's not. It's, 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 a, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of a joke. I'm sort of a joke. <laughs> okay. 
So we are going to just briefly talk about the Diamondbacks trade from over the weekend. And we didn't talk about it yesterday, and I wasn't really planning to talk about it yesterday because it seemed like it had a simple explanation that has now become more complicated. So the Diamondbacks traded Bronson Arroyo and their first-round pick from last year, Tuki Toussaint, uh, who was the 16th overall pick. And they traded them to the Braves for Phil Gosselin, who is, you know, the most marginal major leaguer slash triple-A infielder imaginable, and he's also hurt. (laughs) So that was essentially nothing. But they got salary relief. They got, like, $14 million of Bronson Arroyo off the books. And Arroyo is coming back from Tommy John surgery last July. He's still having elbow pain. He may or may not pitch this year, and if he does, he'll still be Bronson Arroyo. So this was what seemed like a straight-up salary dump. It seemed like the Diamondbacks were just trading a prospect to get rid of Bronson Arroyo, and so it seemed like it must be an ownership-mandated move, or at least I wasn't wasn't ready to jump all over Dave Stewart or Tony Orusa and say, oh, what a stupid move, because it seemed like the sort of thing that would have come from above and been imposed on the baseball people. But today, Tuesday, we have some comments from LaRusa that seem to suggest otherwise. Uh, he says that the Diamondbacks didn't want to wait for Toussaint to develop. They want to win now. They want to add a couple of pieces. They're a lot closer than most people think, and they needed to do this to get financial flexibility so that they could upgrade at this trade deadline and potentially make the playoffs. So if we are accepting that at face value and we're not we're not guessing that he was ordered to come up with some baseball justification of this move so that it wouldn't be seen as purely a salary dump, then and he's not saying it's not a salary dump. He's saying that it's a, a salary dump that enables a salary addition so yeah i never i never i never assumed it had to be from ownership i mean presumably i I mean he could have just wanted to make a move either now or in the future and you know he knows he's got a budget and he wanted to find room in that budget somehow and so he he did the wrong thing to make room in that budget right that was how i kind of took it and i guess that's what it what it seems to be so we we, we, we've we talked about Diamondbacks trades in the past. Everyone has talked about Diamondbacks trades. They have a history of giving up on guys quickly, or so it seems. They've made a bunch of deals. Not all of them have worked out terribly, but seemed very questionable at the time, and some have still seemed very questionable now, whether it was trading Trevor Bauer, trading Justin Upton, trading... Adam Eaton trading, I don't know, Matt Davidson for, or Addison Reed for, uh, they got Addison Reed for Matt Davidson. That probably wasn't one of the, the most hated ones. And Addison Reed is now in AAA. There have been a, a whole sequence of these moves where the Diamondbacks just seem to give up on someone who was a big prospect or a star and just didn't, they didn't think that he fit in their culture or on their roster for whatever reason. And they, seem to sell low. And this has been kind of the defining trait of the Diamondbacks front office over the last few years and still 
continues to be, even though the Diamondbacks front office has been overhauled and Kevin Towers is no longer there. And this may be, I mean, do we, do you think that there is any, anything to what Larusa is saying? Like, are we underrating the Diamondbacks? Is <laughs> no. it, does this make any sort of sense? Heavens no, it makes way less sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, this was a, it seemed like this was a, a kind of a miscalculation in the value of a top prospect. Like, you feel like, and maybe we're wrong, but you sort of feel like, well, you ought to be able to sell, quote unquote, sell, a pretty good prospect for more than they did. If they wanted to just sell a prospect and get money, probably they could have even done better is what people are sort of thinking. I mean, it's all, it's all just asset, uh, asset pricing when it comes down to it. And so if they thought he was an asset that was worth X dollars and they wanted to cash that out and take the money and spend it somewhere else, uh, it's cold, but it's, you know, how we assess pretty much all these moves, whether we use that kind of crass language or not. And I think everybody is basically saying, well, yeah, but he's worth more than that. I mean, we sort of have a general sense of what a prospect is worth and probably worth more than they got for him, right? Well, so, he's, yeah, I mean, he's not a, he's not like a top 10 guy. He's, you know, he didn't even make the baseball prospectus top 101 this year. He was 71st on Baseball America's list. He was 98th on MLB.com's list. I don't know about other lists, but he's, He's, you know, he's 19, he's in A-ball, he's a pitcher, so he's fairly far away, and he's a pitcher, and he's not regarded as, you know, future future ace necessarily. So that, I mean, when you, I'm, I'm trying to remember all the, the studies about what a prospect is worth at various yeah. tiers of the Baseball America list or whatever list, but when you get down to, like, the the lower quartile of the list for pitchers, those guys aren't sure things. Those guys aren't the most valuable assets in baseball necessarily. So I don't know how much is he worth more than 14 million? I mean, probably I think so. Like in 1996, when Scott Boris did that loophole and got Travis Lee and, you know, the other draftee became free agents and those guys got $10 million dollars in 1996, which is still the biggest bonus given to an amateur draftee. So if those guys were worth $10 million as free agents almost 20 years ago, then you would think that a first-round pick from last year who hasn't become a bust or anything would be worth more than $14 million in 2015. Yeah, and Dave Cameron has uh, pointed out, and other people have pointed out, Ben Badler pointed out, that there are, there are other recent international signees that were that are you know fairly the consensus is that they're worse prospects uh, than Toussaint and they cost more. So like the Angels uh, signed Roberto Baldequin, who uh, is probably a worse player a prospect than Toussaint, and they spent uh, thirteen million dollars on him. And uh, the Diamondbacks signed Yoan Lopez, who also rated lower than Toussaint by all the prospect uh, rankings this year. And with taxes, they paid him $16 million. And both of those guys, I believe, I uh, could double-check the ages, but both of those guys also cost them uh, the flexibility to sign international free agents for the next two years because of the uh, penalty for going over your uh, over your pool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so there's, as well as the money, there's opportunity costs. And so 
just based on those, you'd sort of would conclude that the market for him would, or the cost for him would have to probably be more. Although he's it, not a free agent. Tucson is not a free agent. The other guys are free agents. Well, he's not a free agent, so you don't have to pay him more. But the question is what somebody would pay him. And mm-hmm. if somebody would pay those guys more than the Diamondbacks essentially got for Tucson, then presumably someone would pay him that. I mean, he essentially, if, if you have one team that controls him and is selling him to the highest bidder, then he is essentially a free agent. And 29 teams can bid and say, here's what we'll give you. Now, it has to, it's not quite so smooth a transaction because you have to figure out a way to make the contracts work because you can't just give cash. And yeah. You probably wouldn't have approved a trade in which you just gave cash uh, for him. And so they had to do this thing where Arroyo goes out and another prospect goes, you know, another player goes over. Uh, so it's somewhat harder to find a fit, but not that much harder, I wouldn't think. So Dave Cameron ultimately concluded closer to 20 million. So that's, I mean, there's that. You could, you could question whether the money is more valuable to the Diamondbacks right now than a prospect, given where they are in their competitive window and that's i guess what larusa is defending is that part of it yeah so so first off there's the did they sell him for enough and that looks like probably not although that's also as we've talked about in a lot of trades that gives them so little benefit of the doubt it implies that they just picked up you know the phone and made one call and were like sounds good to me like (laughs) oops and they probably didn't right no uh but anyway it looks like they got less for him than some other team might have paid or than they should have held out for. Two is Larusa says that this is the perfect time to trade a prospect for cash. And what we are now saying is that also that's very wrong. <laughs> They're not a good team. They're not a particularly competitive team. Their playoff odds are, they have about yeah. a one in 20 chance of playing in a series. Yeah, their their playoff odds are at baseball perspective seven point three percent at Fangraphs four point one percent, and those are including wild card. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, good heavens, the Diamondbacks are terrible. Like the <laughs> only way you could say this makes sense for the we're competitive now is if you are willing to say we're competitive now and we are going to be really, 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 really uncompetitive soon. And so, even though it's a huge long shot. We just have absolutely no other way of building for the next few years, so we might as well put everything into right now. And mm-hmm. was the Trumbo the Trumbo trade feels like it was maybe I, I don't know I it's hard to it's hard to value Trumbo and Wellington Castillo, but that feels like a for later move. That feels like a we're not competitive now kind of move, doesn't it? Yeah, and that well, that move seemed. Well, I don't know. Not, I mean, the Diamondbacks didn't really have a catcher this year. They, right. You know, they started the season with Tuffy Ghostwitch, so not, I mean, they could use a catcher. And yeah, that's so, true. And I didn't mind that trade. I mean, the first I, Mark Trumbo trade was perplexing, no, but the second Mark Trumbo trade was, was fine. I don't mind it. I'm just wondering whether it yeah. fits into LaRusse's narrative about what the Diamondbacks are doing this year. Because it yeah. feels like it's, it feels, it feels, I think, I, I mean, I'd have to re- really think about it, but it feels like more value later than this year for that move. But it's mm-hmm. a good move. I like that move, too. Yeah, that was fine. So so if that was sort of a sign that, well, maybe the Diamondbacks are not making crazy moves anymore, it didn't last very long. And I'm kind of happy that there is a team like this because I keep thinking that there's going to be a year when there are no teams like this 
because teams seem to keep getting smarter. The vast majority of teams, we can't mock anymore. They're just too smart. They don't say anything stupid. They don't seem to do anything that's clearly stupid. They talk like we talk when they talk at all, and there's no fun in that. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's a better game. Maybe it's a more entertaining product, but there's some value in snark for fans and it seems like there's always a team that deserves the snark and i wonder how long that will last right now they're you know like the royals used to be that team they're not that team anymore the pirates used to be that team they're not that team anymore there are a lot of teams that fit into that box at one point that no longer do because they are different people and we still have the diamondbacks we still have the phillies maybe we're moving to a world where which would probably be better where we snark about individual moves on their merits instead of knee-jerk snarking about the team themselves. Yeah. And I think it was a, a step forward that we spent much of the offseason wondering what in the world the Rays were doing and for part of it wondering what in the world the A's were doing instead of just going, you know, make fun of make fun of the Phillies and, and laud the smart teams. It's not really like that anymore. Now we can, we can, can make fun of everybody. Yeah, and, and While the Diamondbacks... being humble about the fact that we have no idea what they're doing and that a lot of the moves that we like turn out horrible and vice versa. And the Diamondbacks have turned over largely since they drafted Tucson, so the GM who was there is no longer there. The scouting director who drafted him is no longer there. It's the same farm director, but there's been a lot of change, and maybe they just don't like Tucson as much as the regime that drafted him did, and maybe they don't believe in him. But the thing with the Diamondbacks has always been that it seems like they could at least take advantage of the fact that other people believe in these players. They seem to give up on players that they no longer think are going to turn out to be good. But meanwhile, the consensus still seems to be that they are going to be good. And you'd think they could get a a return for them that would be appropriate for a player who's going to be good. But they always just seem to make that reflexive move just get them get them out of there instead of waiting and maximizing the return anyway it's another weird diamondbacks trade i don't know whether where it ranks on the hierarchy of diamondbacks trades but it's up there and it maybe is a reminder that ownership matters we don't usually talk about like a a team president or a an owner's hiring ability we always focus on the gm or maybe a team president who used to be a GM, and it kind of matters that you have someone who hires a good person for those roles. And if you get rid of Kevin Towers and you just hire a couple other people who seem to have a similar approach or make similarly strange moves, then you haven't really improved. Ownership matters. So Jason says of the prosecution of uh, non-prosecution of sports violence, I don't think there is a carve-out, certainly not in criminal law. It's just that culturally it's not prosecuted. Civil law, suit for assault, there might be some assumption of risk to overcome. But I think it's, again, mainly cultural why nobody ever sues. And I've got an Economist article here that I'm going to read to you. Boxing is extreme. Competitors win by hurting each other. But other contact sports and those using dangerous implements such as bats and hard balls can also injure and kill. The death of Philip Hughes in November in cricket was a sad example. Though he died after a rock-hard, fist-sized object was thrown toward him, no one was prosecuted. As a batsman playing cricket, he fell victim to an accident, not a crime. But playing sport is not licensed for anarchy. Murder on the football pitch is still murder. But rather than passing clear laws, 
common law countries have set the boundaries of the carve out for sports via prosecutorial discretion and a few close call cases. Those boundaries can shift with social norms. Sometimes they're extended. Norway has just ended its ban on professional boxing, for instance. But in most countries, they are likely to narrow with potentially large consequences. Players, teams, and leagues could find themselves legally liable for injuries once regarded as routine. And if the public turns away from dangerous games, huge industries such as football could vanish. But the basic principle that makes violence in sports legal is consent. Anyway, the point is sort of that more prosecutions might come as we get a little more sensitive to them and that precedent might uh, fade away. And maybe that is what is leading to this. Yeah, well, just the institutional risks that players face have now kind of become criminalized, right? Like concussions, head injuries, those used to just be accepted as part of the game, but now players have successfully extracted you know, penalties from the leagues for not protecting them from those things. So you could see that eventually extending to just regular fisticuffs. Mm-hmm. One last thing about Larusa, I noted, I think at the time, last November he said he would be heartbroken if the Diamondbacks didn't finish over 500, and the Diamondbacks are now 34 and 35, so maybe he is just trying to avoid heartbreak. We can all sympathize with that. He needs to make the Diamondbacks two games better in order to avoid being heartbroken. That's worth, that's why Tony Lewis's heart is worth a former 16th overall pick. So the, the thing about it is that they are, they're now going to trade more prospects. This, this hit, this is suggesting that they're now going to trade more prospects in order to take on players who cost money and that will make them not good enough to make the postseason. So in fact, what we have seen is that they have sold Toussaint in order to enable them to trade other prospects away. <laughs> yep. All for a, uh, all for a run at a postseason that while I err on the side of go for it, uh, in this case, I can't. I just, mm-hmm. they're very, they're, <laughs> They're vi- no. They're not very bad. They're they're a 500 almost 500 team. But they're very unlikely to make it. Yes, yes. They're they not are. they are not a good team. No, they are not. <laughs> and they're not in a I they're they remain in a division that they would rather not be in. And Pittsburgh and Chicago have set the wild card by uh, bar very high right yeah. now. It's just not gonna it's not gonna happen. No. Okay. Well, Arizona Diamondbacks Baseball. So send us emails for the email show at podcast.baseballperspectus.com. Support our sponsor, the Play Index, going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Our Facebook group is now up to 2,800 listeners, facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We will be back soon.